Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. How much did the pirate pay to pierce his ears? How much? The buccaneer. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from APM, American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download. Culture, food, and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from SNL star Kyle Mooney. That'll help break the ice. He'll be back later to talk about his new film, Brigsby Bear, and to answer your etiquette questions. Plus, musician-turned-director Flying Lotus is here to champion his nightmarish movie, Cuso. It lends new meaning to the term gut-wrenching, folks. Oh, yes. Also coming up, we get into photographer, author, and critic Teju Cole's blind spot. The musician known as Vagabond DJs your dinner party, and we get ahead of a new seafood trend, fish collars. Ahead collars. That's right. Glad you caught that. I don't know whether to punch or hug you right now. But first, small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. President Trump is making a last-ditch effort to revive the GOP health care bill. John McCain has been diagnosed with brain cancer. Trump Jr. accepted the meeting with the understanding that he would receive damaging information about Hillary Clinton. Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by senior staff editor at The New York Times, Aaron McCann. Hello. Aaron, what story <laughs> are you going to be talking about this weekend? I have a story today from the Alaska Dispatch News. The headline I'll give you is... It's Eagles 1, Drones 0. And I'm guessing the Eagles are not a sports team. (laughs) They are not. Up there in Alaska, it is an Eagle Eagle that took out a $6,000 drone. Wow. (laughs) America. I've never been more proud of America's symbol. It's a really good line of defense up there in Alaska, close to Russia. You've got a drone, and it's nice that an eagle is trained to take it out. And, oh, was it trained? No. (laughs) But they could be. These eagles are not trained, but in France, it turns out, they are, in fact, training eagles to take down drones. Who is is they? Do they have eagle trainers in the French army? Is that what we're saying? (laughs) It is the French French army. Army is training eagles to cripple what they call hostile drones. I love this idea of this. Is it a little encampment with great <laughs> wine and cheese? Yeah. And... Just picture them in the French Foreign Legion uniforms. <laughs> eagles running away from Alaska to join the French Foreign eagles Legion in class. of eagles. But in this case, it was it's a wild eagle that took out, I guess it was a video drone shooting video or something? They think it was probably a nesting eagle and the, the eagle saw it as a threat and it just took it out. It fell into the bay and the drone has not been seen since. I'd like to think that they're going to get like some scuba gear and go down and look for it because I'd like to see this video. <laughs> but then maybe if they go with scuba gear, they're going to get attacked by sharks. Maybe the animals are just over technology. They're done. Then we'll have a story for the next time I visit. Guard your iPhones. Aaron McCann, thank you so much for the small talk. You bet. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a camel, but instead of water, it stores booze. I want that as a pet. First, the history part. Right around this time back in 1902, a guy named Willis Carrier drew up plans for an invention that made life more comfortable for everyone. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Willis Carrier made a lot of customers cool. It all started at the turn of the century, when Carrier, armed with a spanking new engineering degree, got a gig designing heating equipment for a company called Buffalo Forge. Maybe it was hanging around hot steam all day, but soon he got to thinking about how to make rooms cooler and drier. Now, refrigeration systems had been around for years, but while they helped control temperature, they weren't great at controlling humidity. The story goes that one cold, foggy night, Carrier was standing on a train platform and got an idea. 
By pushing air through cold water, he could make his own fog and regulate the amount of moisture in it. He was right. In 1902, Buffalo Forge installed Carrier's new system at a printing plant. The cooler, drier air kept paper from expanding or contracting, making it easier to print on. Just a year out of grad school, Carrier had invented the first modern air conditioning. It didn't take long for air conditioning to revolutionize basically everything. Gillette reduced rust in its razor blade factories. Textile plants reduced static in their machines. And eventually, air conditioners started showing up in private homes, making it suddenly not insane to live in hot places like Arizona. Willis Carrier soon formed his own business with some other engineers. And the Carrier Corporation is still one of the biggest air conditioning outfits on Earth. In fact, it lent its name to Syracuse University's Carrier Dome Stadium, near which the company still does a lot of R&D. Despite the name, the Carrier Dome isn't air-conditioned. So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve with it. I'm speaking with Dave Alderkirk. He is co-owner of Al's Wine and Whiskey Lounge in Syracuse, New York, where I understand that it's not exactly been a love affair between the townsfolk and the Carrier Corporation. Is that correct, Dave? Well, I believe it was for a lot of years. But uh, they went from the biggest manufacturing company in the central New York area, and then a lot of the jobs were sent elsewhere. As a, as a Pittsburgher, I, I've heard versions of this story in the Rust Belt for many years. But so I understand your the drink that you've come up with is perhaps a little bitter. Well, I did a play on the dark and stormy which my idea was the cold and bitter. <laughs> and in keeping with the spirit of the Carrier Corporation, who now designs things here but doesn't manufacture anything here, we've designed the drink here in Syracuse, but we've made it with things from other parts of the world that you'll have to put together somewhere else. <laughs> oh, my God. All right, so what, what is in this thing? So we'll start with two ounces of Gosling's Black Seal Rum for Bermuda. Okay. And Amaro Nonino from Italy, which lends complexity and bitterness. All right. And so far, Bermuda and Italy, both places that could use some air conditioning. Right. And now we'll add off five ounces of Gosling's ginger beer, which also from Bermuda. And, uh, we'll finish with a squeeze of lime, also not grown here. And we'll flame an orange, also not grown here. Flame that over the glass. And we'll pour over crushed ice to make it extra cold. And there you have it, cold and bitter. Yes, it's bitterly, bitterly cold. I assume that this is a summertime drink. You You know, we kind of kiddingly joke about our weather here. It's 10 months of winter and two months of tough sledding. So (laughs) we can't really separate things by uh, winter and summer around here too much because there isn't enough summer. (laughs) You must admit, it never really fully made sense to base an air conditioning company in there in the first place. No, no, it it really doesn't. Brendan, speaking of New York winters, the reason the Carrier Dome has no AC mm-hmm. is because they figured that during the school year, it would never be warm enough outside to need it. Ah, see? I got it. But they have little coal-burning stoves at every seat, I've heard. Really? It yes. Sounds very nice and cozy. It, it is very cozy. Oh. Uh, folks, you'll find recipes for drinks of all temperatures at our website. Mm. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. And now the soundtrack in which a great musician DJs your dinner party. And on deck this week is Letitia Tomko, a.k.a. Vagabond. 
Raised in Cameroon before moving to New York City, she had just earned an engineering degree when some demos she posted online started winning fans. Mm. Her debut album, Infinite Worlds, is full of songs about the challenges of trying to find a place to fit in. Here she is with a playlist that might help. Hi, this is Leticia. I make music as Vagabond. I think my dream dinner party... I'm imagining kind of like a sunroom where every wall is covered in windows. It's just green outside and there would be rosé and there would be whiskey and peonies on the table as a centerpiece. This is my dinner party soundtrack. Don't touch my hair When it's the feelings I wear I would play Don't Touch My Hair by Solange as everyone is starting to sit down. It's one of my favorite songs, and I think it would just send a clear message about what kind of dinner party this is. It's chill, but demands respect. The message of the song is just so clear. It's one that a lot of people with natural hair, people of color face, and it's kind of playful. But I think overall it represents kind of respect these things about me that may seem like they're accessible to you or available to you. But what is available to you is what I give to you. I would like to have a dinner party that is vegan. I'm vegan. It's, I hate saying that. I don't know why it has such a a strange connotation to it, but there would be a lot of roasted vegetables. Parsnips are number one in my home. (laughs) My second pick, it's called Something About John Coltrane by Alice Coltrane. It's just the perfect song to kind of have dinner to or have lay in the background, but also definitely sets a mood. You know, it's classy stuff. (laughs) I grew up listening to West African jazz, East African jazz. So this is kind of the first, I guess, like American jazz person that I'm really diving into. love instrumental music. You can kind of listen to instruments as if they are telling the story as opposed to words. I don't know, I just think it's it's genius. Everyone is loving it. Everyone's actually going to turn vegan after this. (laughs) The next song, It by Christine and the Queens, I play it every time I DJ anywhere. It's always a hit. Just upbeat enough for a dinner party, and you can kind of feel more like you're at a party to close it out. 
People love it because I usually play it to break up overproduced songs, like overly compressed for the radio kind of stuff. And this falls a little bit in between. And people can still dance to it, but their brains can have a break from the intensity of what was probably happening before or what is yet to come. This serves a perfect purpose, <laughs> the song that I love. As people are trickling out and dinner's over, I would play Cold Apartment. Cold Apartment is actually the first song that I've ever written. And it's kind of cool that it gets to be on, on my first album. I know it's my fault. I gave up on everything. And I see you have I think I would put my all into this party. It would be great and then everyone would have to go home <laughs> so that I can like dim the lights and sage my house and kind of go to bed. <laughs> Dinner party soundtrack from Letitia Tomko, a.k.a. Vagabond. She heads out on tour this fall. All right, coming up, another music whiz, Flying Lotus, tells us about his brain-melting, stomach-churning directorial debut. Mm. And I tuck into some fish collars. It's a great follow-up there. Yep. Plus, SNL's Kyle Mooney takes a vague stab at relationship advice. Can you do, like, six days wedding ring, one day other ring? All right, when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of public radio. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later this hour, musician and filmmaker Flying Lotus says his new movie isn't the most disturbing thing ever. It's smells that really do me in, man. Certain smells will just F up my whole night. And in just a few minutes, Brendan eats fish collars. But first, let's learn some etiquette. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this time is Kyle Mooney. Oh, yes. You know him as a cast member on Saturday Night Live, the movie Zoolander 2. And he's now starring in a film he created with an old writing partner, Brigsby Bear. He plays James, a man who is kidnapped as a baby, isolated from society, and given essentially one piece of entertainment to consume, a homemade kids TV show called Brigsby Bear. <laughs> and yes, it's a comedy, mostly. Kyle, welcome to our show. Very, very excited to be here. Uh, Long-time listener, first-time listener, fan. Uh, appearance. Um, so as I was watching this, it occurred to me this film has kind of a similar theme, very generally, to Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, this idea of somebody who's been sequestered away their whole life and then 
is a naive unleashed upon the world. Yeah. What do you think no, is going on with that? What there's a few it? of them. The other one that we kept on referencing was Being There, the Peter Sellers, Hal Ashby yeah. movie. I mean, the, I guess from a comedic standpoint, the fun thing is just playing, I guess, with the kind of alien nature of everything around these characters, you know, and kind of exploring how weird anything can be that you've never seen before, you mm. know. But it also, it seems like it builds off your comedic persona generally. Well, you often play like an earnest but kind of clumsy person. Not physically clumsy, but socially clumsy. <laughs> Listen, Sarah, um... Ah, uh, this is dumb. Ah, <laughs> uh, I... I just want you to know that I really, really, really like you. Soccer? <laughs> Oh, oh, me too. Um, it's good for the kids, you know, to be um, yeah. <sighs> out in the fresh air. Yeah, getting exercise. And, uh... <laughs> and it's almost like this film is a backstory for why that would be the case. You know, like you've been out of society for 20 years. Yeah. Uh, sure. Were you intentionally kind of playing with that persona you've developed? Certainly, yeah. A lot of it is me. I guess the movie has a lot to do with like nostalgia and, and obsession with... A TV show or art or however you want to refer to it, and I, and I was that kid. I, I I like got super into Star Wars and the Beatles and baseball cards. I always had a hobby, mm. so I do identify with James the character. Though I think sometimes I can actually be socially okay. <laughs> Occasionally, you seem fine right now. You got the movie made. You know, I'm I am second guessing myself as I say this though. <laughs> this film was directed. If I'm understanding correctly, by your best friend David McCary. Big Dave McCary. Yeah, we've known each other since. We, I don't know that we ever totally agree on this fact, but um, I think we were aware of each other in maybe fourth grade, became more aware of each other in fifth grade, but did not like one another. And then in sixth grade, <laughs> carpooled together and became friends. So he made this movie and you guys made movies in, or videos in high school. Yeah. So what is it like going from working with people that you've known so closely for years to a show like SNL where there's a new guest every week that you have to integrate into your stuff? Well, I mean, like Dave and I worked together for so long and we in high school we were in a hip hop group and stuff but then, yeah then I went to call I went to yeah. USC and at USC I met Beck Bennett who's on SNL uh, as well as Nick Rutherford we we formed a sketch group basically when when we got out of college and that was kind of to a degree what led to us getting on SNL but it's nice because that show is obviously very terrifying and uh <laughs> to be a part of yeah yeah and just like kind of you know a rat race it's like you're in charge of your own destiny basically and like you're either gonna make a good piece or not and you know it's kind of like fight or flight or something like yeah, that my, my understanding is it's like you're thrown to the lions you come in on your first day exactly. and they're like figure it and out and there are so many like wonderful comedy people who just aren't made for it and like just don't survive you know what i mean it has nothing it says nothing about who you are or what you do it's just it's so specific I was fortunate in the fact that I came there with Dave and Beck, and so mm. it's a positive handicap that, like, your friends are there and, like, you have somebody to write with or hang out with. I can't imagine just going alone, which is what everybody else does. Yeah, it sounds like the first mm. day of high school, actually. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's like terrible. You lucked out in that you brought your clique yeah. with you. Yeah. Um, here's Why don't we get to our etiquette question? Sure. These are people that you've never met before, so I don't know if you've ever been in a situation. Uh, I mean, I've, I've barely met you guys. <laughs> well, that, that kind of hurts a little bit. Uh, oh, no. I'm sorry, Brendan. I felt like we had a, 
something. No, I'm, I'm enjoying. That doesn't mean that I don't like. I'm, I'm having fun here. I don't, okay. <laughs> Clearly, you're the guy that should be telling people how to behave, Kyle. Yeah, you're, you're so smooth and cool. So let's get to the questions. Thank you. Uh, this first one comes from Eric. He sent it to us via Twitter. Yeah. And Eric writes, "My partner already wears a really nice diamond ring. If we got engaged, am I supposed to get her another ring?" My feeling is, uh, I, well, I, I guess it depends on um, how much you want to adhere to tradition or not. Because mm, sure. if you do, I say get the engagement ring. I think that's the romantic thing to do. But some people, I, I'm sure there are a lot of people who don't need a ring. I mean, I guess mm. so. But I mean, don't you think more often than not, you don't, you can't say well, we're about well, to start you, a new life together, but you don't need the symbol of it or anything. You've already got one. I feel like <laughs> you're, it, no, people do not do that. Though I feel like yeah. as a guy... I do find myself, you know, I've definitely done similar things over the course of my life, which is just like like a birthday present for a girlfriend being like, so we don't really need to get each other birthday <laughs> presents, right? You know what I mean? How did that work out? Uh, I think somebody ended up crying. Yeah, I've made a similar mistake. Never <laughs> assume or don't even believe. Uh, like Valentine's Day. Yeah, it's like, come yeah. on, what does it matter? <laughs> that doesn't often yeah. work. So I yeah, so, like. we're, so we're up, we're agreeing to get the ring. It doesn't have to be diamond, but I think just because she already has a ring you, doesn't mean you don't give her one, guys. Yeah, it's not about yeah. practicality. No, I think, Eric, you have to get her the ring. Although Eric makes a point, like, it might be a little embarrassing with her walking around with two diamond rings on one finger. People might think she got engaged to someone else, too. Oh, she can, interesting. Does she, she need to he, keep on the old ring? Yeah. What? Maybe oh. it's time to discard the old ring. But it's a diamond ring. It's really nice, according to Eric. Where does the necklace? Can you, I don't, I'm, I'm not married. Are you guys? No. Uh, I've been through it. Okay. Can you do, like, six days wedding ring, one day other ring? <laughs> I guess. Let's make the rules up. Sure. Sure. There you there go. You That's go. a compromise. Here's something from Kyle in Long Beach, New York. Kyle says, so say you're throwing a dinner party and you've got nice mellow background music playing through your Bluetooth speaker until a guest syncs their phone up to the speaker in order to blast really bad dance pop music. Do you confront them about it or quietly resync the speaker to your phone? This is like a, yeah, this is real. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I suffered a lot. I, I In college, I would like often DJ the party with an iPod. Right. And it always really bummed me out when like I would have three hours of music planned on a playlist and then somebody would just start typing yeah. in their own thing. Yeah, they're ruining the flow. It's awful. And it to me is the rudest thing. I think my move is just to be pretty upfront about it or at the very least be like, oh, cool, yeah, play a couple songs, but I'm going to put my music back on. Indulge them it, briefly. I mean, that is rude that they would just fully change up yeah. the whole thing. It's rude. Imagine, like, preparing a meal and then between courses someone breaks out a bucket of fried chicken. <laughs> I mean, although that sounds great, as I say it, right. not a cool thing to do to the cook. Yeah, sure. You know what would be better right now? Creamed corn. You're like, yeah. but I'm allergic. <laughs> Tough, they say. That's not a friend. Uh, so, Kyle, there you have it. I think, you know, maybe let them play a song or two, but make it clear, look them in the eye, be like, no more. Is that the move, Kyle? I feel great about that for Kyle, and this Kyle says, oh. Kyle, <laughs> oh, I love your music. <laughs> and your name. All right, here's our last question. Yes. Uh, this one comes from Mark via Twitter. Mark asks, is it okay to eat bacon with your fingers? Yeah, right? You're making a look that I made when I read this question. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, yeah, how else do you? I don't know that I could imagine that what, I remember. What do you mean, how else do you do it, guys? There's a fork and a knife. But if you use a fork on a super crispy piece, it shatters into a million pieces. Yeah, right? we're saying it's okay to use your hands, fingers. Is that, what, is that the question? Yeah. So, I'm I mean, trying to think of like moments where in time where I, I, I haven't just used my 
fingers. And I guess that's maybe when bacon is in like an omelet or something Mm. like that. But what if you're at a fancy, what if you just got engaged, you gave someone a second ring Uh and you're meeting their parents Mm -hmm. and they take you to a fancy place. And they switch up the playlist. And the playlist is switched up and you're delivered bacon. Are you still going to eat them with your fingers? Nightmare scenario. Go. Uh... I'm going to, uh, yes, I'm going to use my fingers. <laughs> yeah, you're not changing who you are for these people. <laughs> All right. And if it's in an omelet, I think we can say if it's in an omelet, don't pluck the pieces of bacon yes. out of the omelet with your fingers. Right. There you go, Mark. Got it. Kyle Mooney, thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave and good luck with the film. Yeah, and good uh, good luck to everybody with these pointers. I'm, I'm not sure that I'm the right person to do this, but uh, I did my best. Thank you for trying. Godspeed. Kyle Mooney, he stars in and co-wrote the film Brigsby Bear, which opens next week. And folks, if you've got a question about whether you're allowed to do something everyone does, maybe think twice about it and then go ahead and send it to us anyway. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. And now the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. That's right. Enrico, you've heard the phrase nose-to-tail dining. Of course. It's kind of the idea of eating every part of the animal and not just certain very popular cuts of it. Correct. And it's usually applied to pigs or cows. Mm -hmm. But increasingly, restaurants are serving the less popular parts of fish. The hook, I would imagine. I don't know if that's a part of a fish. You just fry it. it up. Nope. Fish collars have been showing up on more and more menus around the country. Uh And to find out why, I met up with Adam Geringer Dunn. He and his partner Vinnie Milburn own Greenpoint Fish and Lobster. That's a seafood market and restaurant that sells whole fish to restaurants around Manhattan. I met Adam at his shop, and first up, I asked him to tell me what exactly a fish collar is. Fish collars are a cut of the fish just behind the head, kind of where the neck is before you start getting into the fillet. It's kind of there's like a little uh, little fin on the side there. Is, are there any other names for that cut? Fish clavicle. I don't. I don't know. Fish clavicles don't have the same ring to it. So I'm sure there's a technical yeah. name for it, but in the culinary sense of it, we we call it a collar. Part of the reason I'm here is because this cut is emerging on menus. It seems more than it has been in the past. Am I just seeing things, or I don't know. Sometimes I think we might be responsible for that. We're we we have a wholesale business, and we we sell a lot of whole fish, and. I think we're selling whole fish to restaurants, and they're looking for ways to use every piece of the fish. And so they're using the collars because ordinarily a lot of restaurants will order fish in fillets already, and you don't get any of the bone, you don't get any of the the head, the collars. When you get the whole fish, you're going to look to use, you're going to make stock using the frames or the bones. You can use the collars as its own dish on a menu. You can roast the head and serve the head or serve the cheeks. And so restaurants, you know, it's, it's it's competitive in New York. It's a really, really difficult business and people are looking to, you know, offset food costs everywhere they can. And collars are a really great place to do that. I read something you said about how most, many Americans, when they approach fish, they want just white squares. I say that a lot. I think people thought of fish as a white square of protein on a plate, no bones, no skin, no head. And, you know, people, oh, they freak out when they see a head or the eyes and all that. And Even bones, they wouldn't let unfish the fish. Exactly. People will come to us in, in the market and say, does that fish have any bones? I'm like, well, they all have bones. I'll take them out for you, but yeah. they have bones. Even eels have bones, you know. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think people are reconnecting with where their food comes from. Yeah. We've also, we've talked to people at the Monterey Bay and other spots that kind of monitor fish populations and unfortunately, the decline of them in many cases. Is this also maybe a response to that, kind of using all of the protein that comes with these fish we pull from the sea? 100%. I think minimizing waste is a huge part of sustainability. 
So previous to this, were fish collars thrown away or like what happened to them? So previously, fish collars were discarded along with the head and the skeleton. A wholesale fishmonger would take the fillet off and they would trim that, make that nice and neat, and they'd sell that to a restaurant. The yield on a fish collar is pretty minimal. There's a lot of bone, there's some fins, cartilage, things like that. So the value in a traditional sense isn't, isn't there as opposed to a fillet. So that was all getting tossed. I mean, I first came across the idea of fish collars eating at Japanese restaurants. You'd see hamachi kama or, you know, things like that on a menu as its own dish, a standalone dish. And, you know, you use chopsticks and you pick at these little chunks, maybe some grated daikon and some soy and stuff like that. And you, I mean, the, the collar itself is, is gorgeous, I think. But the meat that comes off is just little nibbles. You know, you get little little nuggets of meat and flesh here and there, and you have to work for it. Like crab legs or something. Yeah. There's a lot of work, but once you get those sweet pieces of meat, it's really rewarding. Yeah, the, the flavor on it is amazing. And the Japanese knew what they were doing, and they know there's incredible flavor in that cut. And it's not just dollars and cents in terms of, hey, there's not enough meat on here to put on a plate. It's no, it's, there's value in the flavor. It doesn't have to be a huge quantity of meat, but there's there's value there. I, I've read them described as like the ribs of of the sea. Yeah, I, I kind of think of them as like spare ribs. You kind of get messy with it. You can hold it up and you can nibble on it or dig through it. You're looking, you know, you're working through pieces of cartilage and sinew and stuff, and there's those really good nuggets of juicy meat in there. But also kind of like spare ribs because it's on the on the bone, you get incredible flavor into that flesh. It's also a because of the connective tissue, it's a bit fattier and it holds up a lot better to high heat cooking, so broiling, things like that. So you can get the skin really crispy and a little bit charred, but the flesh itself is still going to stay super moist and juicy. Okay, so we're about to eat this. What kind of fish is this? Sockeye salmon. So this is this is the entire collar. Uh, sometimes you'll get collars. If it's a bigger fish, we'll split it in half. If it's a smaller fish, we'll keep it connected where the spine meets the two sides. There are some bones in there, so you just want to work your way around it. But you just find these little morsels of delicious. Mm. Yeah. This is almost like dark meat. It's a little bit stronger in flavor yeah. and a little bit darker in color, too. But, oops, see, the little okay. comes out of it. See, it's like on the shell there. Yeah, yeah. Because it's not, it's fattier, right? Just like dark meat on a chicken. Yeah, exactly. So, delicious. It's a little bit stronger in flavor, but. This isn't going to feed a family, though. You get a couple of these, snack on them, or it's a little yeah. starter. Everyone yeah. picks at it. Yeah. Kind of whet the appetite a little bit. That is sweet. And what is, is this, there's like a tamari? Yeah. What's, we do, typically we just throw a little bit of lemon juice, tamari, and oil on it. This is delicious. What other, what, what kind of interesting cuts of fish do you think we're going to be, be seeing more of? Or would you like to see more of as someone who loves fish? I'm looking forward to seeing more offcuts, fish offcuts all over menus. And by offcuts, you mean just not the classic fillets? Exactly. And, I'm excited. Whenever I see a restaurant do like a, a roasted fish head, like a giant striped bass or even like a, a tuna, an albacore tuna or something. It's so dramatic and so, to me, it's it's so cool yeah. and really interesting. Like You mean fish heads, fish heads, roly-poly fish heads? Exactly. Adam Geringer Dunn, co-owner of Greenpoint Fish and Lobster, a mm. fish shop and restaurant a mere two blocks from my home, by the way. Nice. So, Rico, I basically conducted that interview in my bathrobe and slippers. Yeah, very Lots professional. He seemed to take that in stride. Well, which was nice of him. My bathrobe has a tuxedo painted on it. Oh, great. Mm -hmm. By the way, the music that you're hearing, ladies and gentlemen, is by another fine gentleman, the musician Flying Lotus. We'll speak to him right after a break. Also coming up, photographer and critic Teju Cole when the Dinner Party download continues.
Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, an hour of all that is fascinating in culture this week. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, the acclaimed photographer and critic Teju Cole explains why he pairs his pictures with thousands of words. Ah. But first, we're going to hear from an artist who's been blowing people's minds in multiple mediums since his music debuted in 2006. Rico sat down to speak with him at our studios a few days back, and it sounded like this. Our guest of honor this week is musician and filmmaker Stephen Ellison, a.k.a. Flying Lotus. Hey. A brief resume. He has earned multiple Grammy nominations for his truly brilliant mashups of jazz, electronica, and hip-hop. And I got beat by Justin Bieber and Taylor Swift. It sounds like you're over it. No, I'm still bitter. <laughs> a little. Should I tell them They about deserve it, it you know. <laughs> Uh, you also wrote interstitial music for the Cartoon Network. Yeah. Uh, you appeared on Kendrick Lamar's landmark album, To Pimp a Butterfly. Yeah. And you have now released what website The Verge calls the grossest movie ever made. It's called Cuso. Hey. And Sir Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, before we get into the movie, because there was a lot to talk about there, <laughs> I, I should note, casual fans of your music may not know this, you actually did go to film school. I did, was- yeah. Yeah, it was cool. It was cool for a while, L.A. Film School. But you dropped out, right? No, I dropped out of the next school I went to, which the, which was the Academy of Art uh-huh. in San Francisco. I was still studying film there, but I was also getting into making music on a computer, which was kind of foreign. <laughs> At the <laughs> so, time. Yeah, yeah. I started just, like, skipping class. What filmmakers were you influenced by? I can see, I mean, I could give you my guesses. Well, I I was in that, the prime target for the independent film revolution you know in the 80s and 90s yeah the 90s it was the one uh kevin smith and tarantino and robert rodriguez they all came out with their stuff and they were you know freaking people out with their low budget movies and as well like using their platforms to shine light on all these obscure films that no one had heard of and that's how i started getting into like you know some of the more left field filmmakers watching this film i would have said definitely uh david lynch Mm. and david cronenberg they're all yeah Yeah. i mean i I ate a lot of movies bro (laughs) i ate a lot of movies well let's talk about the movie and people may understand why i bring up Mm. those particular filmmakers you don't have to spoil the movie by doing this just letting you know i i I feel like i owe it to our audience to tell them (laughs) what we're dealing with on some level okay they decide to go see it sure yeah all right it's it's set in a surreal kind of post-apocalyptic world after a major earthquake Mm. There are these multiple nightmarish storylines involving horrors really so extreme that I can't even summarize some of them on a family show. This is a family show? It is kind of a family show. the family. (laughs) Well, now it isn't. (laughs) Now it's for certain members of the family. But all the characters have boils on them. There are a lot of bodily fluids. There's a lot of extremely lowbrow humor. I didn't realize that I had a thing for fluids. Someone pointed that out. I didn't know it was a thing, though. I guess I do. Even after watching the movie through, it did Honestly, not occur to you there's an awful lot of bodily fluids yeah. being shooting out of various p- people? You know what? I think, though, it's the smells that really do me in, man. A smell, certain smells will just F up my whole night. <laughs> Thank you. Family. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting. That's one sense you can't engage with film. Can't do anything with that, right? It's like, yeah. we don't have the smell of vision popping off yet, man. Is that, but if that, is that if next? We could, dude, if it... <laughs> I'd be so stoked to mess with smells. Well, but before we go there, I do also want to note there are moments of real beauty in this movie. Thank you. And there is the direction of the performances 
it's clear that this isn't just like, you know, grindhouse B-movie schlock. Yeah. That, that was that, unfortunate. You know, it's, it's unfortunate people had this expectation of it, you know, because of some early reviews and stuff of the movie that we're only talking about how gross it was. It was they don't ever mention how artful it can be at times, too. So thank you for for uh, letting the family know about that. <laughs> but that also leads me to a question, which is, well, I mean, you've kind of answered it. it that wasn't then your core idea to make the grossest movie ever? Was... It wasn't my core idea to make the grossest film of all time. It was more like, I'm so tired of everything trying to be nice and clean and friendly and safe and PG-13 or whatever. And I also knew that if I made like a real middle-of-the-road movie for my first movie, no one would give a you know, and I was like, it was that kind of punk rock attitude and kind of like, I'm going to go into the room and beat the biggest person in the room. That was like more of my attitude. You know, it was like, no, you're going to hear me. I mean, people are paying attention. Is it always, is the, the attention that you would want? Um, I don't I don't know yet. You know, I don't I've not had this experience. I never made a movie before. I don't know about getting death threats and stuff. You know, I don't know if that's... Has that happened? I don't know. I don't know about it. I don't know. But I know that some filmmakers have gotten death threats and stuff over their their films. They've been banned in countries or whatever. I don't know what that's like. You know, I don't know. I mean, I've come from music where it's like, if you don't like it, you just skip it. And you're like, "Mm." Mm -hmm. But people who don't like movies, they genuinely hate them and they want to talk about how much they hate something And because I sat there for two hours and watched this horrible thing i'm not used to that so we'll see what happens you know i i know that there's an audience for this because i was on you know i was that kid who liked the craziest movies you know and i Mm -hmm. wanted i want to serve that kid now you know i want someone to see this and have to show it to somebody you know it's like the 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 cassette in the ring you know like you gotta see it you're going to die, but <laughs> you got to watch it. Well, like the last line of the movie, actually, which is actually very powerful. Skin me alive, I survived, and I can barely believe it. And I wondered if that was as much aimed towards us, the audience. It's like you Absolutely. made it through this movie. Absolutely. You know, when when uh, when I was talking to, to Bus Driver, the guy who made the poem. Bus Driver is the guy who delivers that mm-hmm. line. Yeah. I really uh, just tried to explain all my anxieties about what I had personally gone through in 94 when I was 10 years old and a big earthquake happened uh, and just terrified me. So, you know, it was, uh, he pulled from that and he made this amazing poem that really summarized that feeling and that anxiety. Instabilization, 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 driven by an exact sense of nowhere. Instabilization, 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 driven by exact sense of nowhere. A sense of nowhere on Crenshaw Stalker. Pop lockers channeling energy from a chakra straight from the instilled ancient genius. But it's too late. Death is on your hell. At the beginning of the movie, the same character says, once you're dead, then you're dead. There's no coming back. Yeah. And he says it over and over again. It's like the overture of the film. Mm-hmm. You've also got your last album, which was called You're Dead. Oh, you getting it. <laughs> what is it? You are a young, super successful guy. What is your preoccupation with death? I think that line, it comes from... I mean, I've had a lot of death in my life. People pass away that were really close to me that had a huge effect on me. You know, I lost my parents. Uh, I mean, I know my dad, but my mom, she passed away when I was in my 20s, you know. Mm. And uh, every time something like that happens, it just rewires my brain and what I think of 
of the world and my place in it and, you know, my responsibilities and, you know, what I'm here to do and say, I guess for everyone, it throws you for a loop. But it's a very specific way you address it. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. you address it with this movie that is extreme in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. including humor. Like mm-hmm. there's a lot of really silly humor. In oh, yeah. Where does that come from? How does ridiculous juvenile humor fit into it? Coping. <laughs> just coping, really, trying to make the most out of it, make a joke out of it, make sense out of it. I think one of the things that just, in the making of this movie, one of the things that really uh, just hit me is just like, man, people are just so afraid to take a joke lately. Everyone's getting so offended easily, mm-hmm. you know, and you know you can't say certain things anymore about race and about sex and gender, whatever, you know, like, it's just, just remember, we're just dumb-ass people, <laughs> ugly-ass people. Like just, just take a joke, you know. Particularly if you're covered in boils yeah. that are leaking everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, we have two questions that we ask everyone on the show. Uh-oh. The first one is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? If you meet me at a dinner party, don't ask me what it was like to see everyone walk out of my movie at Sundance. Because <laughs> that didn't happen. That was not true. It did not happen? <laughs> it did not happen. The premiere was amazing. Everyone stayed and had a great time. There was a press screening. A lot of them walked out, okay? Really? Yeah, well, that, that's the difference. It wasn't for Vanity Fair, okay? It's not for <laughs> GQ magazine or whatever. I would, get, but I would definitely it, agree with you on that. Right? Okay, and that's fine. But don't say, like, the premiere and all and the fan. Everybody walked. That's, like, that's a lie. Journalists aren't everybody. <laughs> just we're kind of just we're some people. <laughs> you guys are people, too, but kind of. Thank you. It's important <laughs> to say in this day and age, I think. Uh, our second question is, tell us something we don't know. And this can be about anything. It could be about yourself or it could be a piece of trivia about the world. You know they got championship tag now? Is that true? That's a real thing. I was, I was looking at it on the way over here, bro. <laughs> they got world championship chase tag. It's amazing. It's like parkour. It's like parkour with tag? So there are people like jumping through windows and rolling off of rooftops? This is a video... I'm being shown. <laughs> You're right. It's like guys playing tag through some sort of gymnastic equipment. Oh, my God. They're leaping all over the place. They're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We're definitely putting this video on our website. That's a thing. It's a thing. Championship tag. I will say the audience is not enormous, so this hasn't reached, you know, like soccer stadium It ain't size. world championships. That's for sure. This is like Ohio championships right here. Steve Ellison, a.k.a. Flying Lotus. Whose great aunt and uncle were John and Alice Coltrane, two legends, by the way. They were, which may partially explain his musical genius, which you are listening to right now. His debut film is called Cuso. If you've got the guts for it, you can check it out on the streaming service Shudder and in select theaters now. Our next guest is a true polymath, Teju Cole. His novel, Open City, won the Penn Hemingway Award, and he writes about photography in a column for the New York Times Magazine, which makes sense since he also exhibits his own photography around the world. His new book, Blind Spot, combines all these pursuits into one publication. It's a beautiful green volume. Each page on the left contains writing related to an image on a page to the right, and each pairing is named after a location. Hmm. The images are composed, but fairly mundane, no landmarks and rarely any people. When I spoke with Teju, I asked him why. I really believe that places retain traces of, of the things that happen in them, uh, that the past is not past. 
So one of the central conceits of the book, in a sense, is that when I'm looking at a street corner in New York, I'm not just looking at a street corner in New York in 2017. I'm looking at a place where a lot of things have been happening for a century or two. So that the photo in the book is, you turn the page, you're like, okay, that's interesting, but not much seems to be going on. And then you read the text, and it's either quite a lot happened in that space, or quite a lot is going on compositionally, or quite a lot is going on in my mind at the moment when I take the picture, exactly, or quite a lot is going on at the moment when I sit down to look at the picture long after I have taken it. So it's gesturing to the idea that there's a lot rushing under what, even what looks like there's not much going on. Why give the text and the image equal billing? Traditionally, I think people, when they think of, of photography, they think of captions. Yeah. These don't strike they, me as captions at all. They they're, seem, they're not and, captions. And they're, and they're set visually in their own place. Absolutely. They're not captions at all. The simple reason for it is that, you know, I I try to be gangster, you know. I, <laughs> I, I, I want to say I'm a writer, I'm a photographer, equal billing. Yeah. Not, a, not dabbling in writing, not, you know, doing photography in my spare time. This is my work. So to give people an idea of how this all comes together in your book, I want to turn to page 50, sure. actually. Mm-hmm. So we're in Zurich. We know that because there's the title, but yeah. that's it. But you could not have told that it was Zurich. Absolutely not. Yeah. yeah. There's, it's, I it's, love it's, this photo. <laughs> it's, a, it's a stencil of a kind of a, a gunslinging cowboy yeah. on top of um, a rectangle on the side of a building. And then you see also a window and in it reflected a tree. And yet, it's, then the text, though, this is an example of you just kind of um, thinking about Zurich and right. what's, what you can see and what you can't see. As plain as, as the surface is, it, it's a photograph that exists within a certain language in, in the history of photography of seemingly banal everyday life where a lot of the pressure is then actually on, on the composition. Mm. Okay, I don't want to sh- take a photo of the two uh, main cathedral bell towers in Zurich to prove to you that it's Zurich. This is just as Zurich as that would be. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm interested in that neglected angle mm-hmm. of the face of a city. And the text alongside this photo focuses on something similar. In it, uh, Instead of just talking about the peaceful and calm Switzerland people imagine or that you imagine, you focus on their history as mercenaries for hire and how they have an arms industry. Because of their quality control and precision work, they're very good at making weapons. And and so, you know, it brings... And it's interesting you pull this one out because it brings together a lot of the concerns in the book. Like that photo- photograph is very typical of my style. And the meditation on a placid surface that is concealing tremendous violence is very typical of what I'm trying to think about in the book. All right, well, I want to look at another facet of your style. Let's turn to page 296. Okay. And this photo is an example of another common motif in your work. It's a photograph partially of another photograph. You do this again and again. Yeah, shall I describe the image to yeah, you? Yeah, please. Okay, so this is at Place de la Concorde in Paris, at a corner of that uh, plaza. At the top there, a column, maybe from Napoleonic times, mm-hmm. possibly. On the left, a crowd of people. And then in front of them, there's a building. You see the building in the distance above it, those clouds. And then right at the bottom center of the image 
is a sign for churros. Oh, they're churros. They're churros. Uh-huh, which uh, so, I didn't think of Paris. I right, think but it's a street vendor selling churros. Yeah, yeah. And then this, and this one of these guys uh, in the crowd, a group of people we only see from behind, his shadow falls exactly on this sign. So then to this, you, you tell a story. I'll read it very quickly. Yeah. It's quite short. Paris. In April 1981, at Sophie Carl's request, Carl's mother hires a private detective to follow Carl around to report on her daily activities and provide photographic evidence of her life. The private detective does not know that the person he is following has paid to have herself followed. He thinks that of the three of them, himself, Carl, and Carl's mother, he knows the most about the situation. In fact, he knows the least. She leads him around Paris, showing him her favorite places. He sees only what she wants him to see. It feels like a fable or something. What do you think of it? Yeah, I mean, well, one of the things I'm doing is there's a whole series of pictures in the book where we see people from behind. And I just wanted to think through different layers of that. Like, you know, I'm thinking about what it means for somebody to turn away. I'm thinking about what it means for somebody to have a sort of privacy in a public space. But then I'm also thinking about when I'm looking at somebody, uh, you know, the back of the head or whatever, I feel as if, you know, I have some kind of measure of control. Mm -hmm. I know what's up. Mm Mm-hmm. And I just thought Sophie Cal's story was a kind of like a warning. Where's my blind spot? How yeah. do I know that at that very moment, someone is not behind me taking a picture of the back of my head? Yeah. I'm wondering while you were putting this book together, if you didn't see a pattern of where you were leading yourself or if you didn't learn some dimension of Teju and your travels. I that think you maybe so. I mean, before. when you're editing, you start saying, oh, wow, I, sh- I sure shot a lot of ladders. Yeah. Some of it is intentional and then some of it you end up discovering. So... One major, let's say, blind spot in this book is that for a book that's dealing with blindness and what you, what you can't quite see, it has a very, very few shots taken in, at night or in the dark. Mm. It's all daylight. Yeah. Major blind spot. Teju Cole, his book Blind Spot is out now. And if you want to see a picture of me literally standing in Teju's blind spot, <laughs> nice. you'll find that on Instagram, where our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD. And that's the Dinner Party download for this week, folks. But fear not, we are always available via our podcast feed. In fact, we've got a slew of bonus episodes you will only hear if you subscribe. Do that on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are podcasted. This episode would not exist without senior producer Jackson Musker, associate producers James Kim and Krista Ripple, and associate digital producer Christina Lopez. Our intern is Emerald Douglas, Drew Jostad engineered, and we're sad to say goodbye to another engineer this week, Brad Fisher. Uh, Brad bought talent, tech savvy, and a great sense of humor to our office. He was a huge support at live events. We're really sad to see him go. Thank you, Brad, and bon appetit, everyone. 